0: Welcome to PIs Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Hey, 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 it's Thursday, which means it's P.I.C. Classified. Welcome to the show. Um, I am excited today to introduce you to my guest, Brian Briscoe, and he's going to be talking about workplace investigations. Uh, Workplace investigations, sometimes within a government agency, which is kind of interesting, little different spin. And before we start, though, I want to remind you do not forget, do not forget, do not forget the New York Investigators Conference, November 8th, 11th. We're on the downhill slide here for that conference. If you're still interested in going, Go to www.2018investigators.com. It's going to be held at the Hotel Pennsylvania, November 8th through 11th. Both NCISS, National Council of Investigative Security Services, and PI Magazine are sponsors. Thanks to uh, PI Magazine, our sponsors for this show as well, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli, uh, which we all always appreciate. Anyway, so, hi, Brian. Here is Brian Briscoe. How are you?
2: Good morning. I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm great. So you and I were just talking off the line that you and I met at some point in time. How long ago was that? Do you think?
2: Probably three years ago. Probably three years, three years ago. ago at a Cali training.
1: Yeah. For uh and where was the training at?
2: It was in I believe it was actually in Sacramento.
1: Okay. That was the California. I don't remember what the topic of it was. Okay. A California Association of Licensed Investigators is what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. Well, um, <laughs> I know when I saw your photograph you looked familiar to me, so I was trying to put that together. So so nice to meet you again on the on the telephone. Likewise. Yeah. So um Brian, you're a licensed private investigator. How long have you been doing that?
2: I've been licensed since twenty fourteen.
1: Okay. And just kind of briefly give us a little bit about your background.
2: So I have, um, and this might be true for a bunch of your listeners, I have a bit of an odd um, path leading me up to my PI uh, licensure and work and then what I do now. Um, So I kind of got the law enforcement bug very early on. I was a police cadet uh, in the California, San Francisco Bay Area uh, at an early age, and I did that for several years, went to the police academy, got hired on as an officer, Unfortunately, that didn't last, and then I worked uh, here and there in private security and loss prevention, uh, ultimately landing in an animal control role, and that's where I really got into the investigative side of things. Uh, I got my PI license right at the tail end of my time in animal control and then worked my own uh, PI business for several years, um, and then, oh, excuse me, not several years, for. let me back up here a little bit. So, due to the requirements to get your PI license, all of the verified hours I right. had to do the um, the hours to meet that requirement to sit for the exam, so I did Correct. that, and then I got my license actually right before I got hired with the state, and I've been with the state now since mid-2014,
0: and oh, I nice. still do
2: my PI stuff on the side, just not very active with it, if you will. I, I'm very selective in the cases that I take. I have mm-hmm. to be because of the conflict of interest with my state capacity, um, but in my state capacity, I'm an investigator as well. I'm um, currently working several fraud cases.
1: Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, uh, you're allowed to work privately since you're with a state agency. That's it's kind of interesting. Yeah,
2: right? if anything is is kind of broaches that line there, I have to run it by my my leadership and say, "Hey, this is I want to work this case or I'm just going to deny it because it's an obvious conflict of interest, but if there's anything that might be in the gray area there, I have to get their approval on it."
1: Mhm. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um uh, makes perfect yeah. sense. So, um so let's just talk about the licensing thing, because you mentioned getting the hours. So did you have to work the 6,000 hours that's required in California?
2: <laughs> so I was able to get actually my um, uh, director at Animal Control to sign off on some of those, and BSIS, BSIS accepted that as verification ah. of some of those hours. And then I did have to work the remainder under a licensed PI.
1: Yeah, Okay. And so I'm really curious what kind of investigations does animal control do
2: <laughs> so the, the you know the obvious of cruelty investigations yeah um, and that those kind of run the gamut from you know kind of minor uh infractions, if you will misdemeanor level infractions up to serious felony uh, cases where you know it involves either the death of the animal or severe injury to. Um, so we didn't have a whole lot of those, but you know, we had several, and I saw several of those through to prosecution and warrant issue um, for the the suspect in those cases.
1: Yeah, I actually remember one in Contra Costa County that had to do with uh, cockfighting.
2: Mm. That there was a huge investigation. Yeah, that's on. that's a an egregious violation, if you will. It's uh, nobody likes yeah. that.
1: Yeah, interesting. That's fascinating. I've yeah. never talked to anybody <laughs> that that did animal uh, investigations before, so that's that's interesting. So
2: it's nothing like oh. the animal cops on the the, the uh, Animal Planet <laughs> show. <laughs> no,
1: well, I'm so surprised. <laughs>
2: that's <laughs> funny.
1: So and, um, you know, so somewhere along
2: the way, there the, actually the state agency that I was working for, I just transferred state agencies uh, a few months ago. So the agency I was with prior um, sent me to uh, the CFE training, and I got my. CFE certification the first part of this year.
1: Okay. i You know, there's so many jokes you could tell about about connecting animals to investigate. I won't even... I mean, it's, they're running through my mind right now. I won't even bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yeah, so you just transferred. I know um, we already talked on offline. You cannot disclose the agency you work for or have worked for in the past yes. uh, regarding a government agency. But we can, you know, we can kind of talk around it um and mm-hmm. you're doing workplace investigations now is that what so you're doing i
2: was and now with this new agency i'm doing okay. more regulatory investigations of licensees um mm-hmm. and without getting into too more details because it'll give away the agency uh, right. <laughs> right, exactly. um, but i was previously doing the workplace investigations for three years um okay. and now I'm on the regulatory side. Interestingly enough, you know, there's there's the fraud in, in both aspects. So I, I did uh, several fraud investigations with the previous agency and I'm working that's pretty much all I'm working right now with the current agency.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. So um we need to talk more offline. <laughs>
2: so, okay. <laughs>
1: as as you know, I work with uh a regulatory agency as well and a um more of a Ad hoc capacity. So, um, mm-hmm. anyway, but we're going to talk about workplace investigations today. And uh, I think I find it so interesting because I'm sure it must run a little bit differently when you're working for a government agency than when you're working for a private employer.
2: Um, yeah, so, I would say so. Um, yeah. Everything's different.
1: Right. So, to kind of tell me the process, would you, of uh, what happens uh, in a situation so, with a government agency?
2: Sure. So by law, you know, we're mandated to have um, multiple ways that individuals can report a, a violation or a complaint to us. And, uh, you know, the most popular one that we saw at that previous agency was through our independent third party administered um, hotline, the whistleblower hotline, if you will, uh-huh. not the one through through the Bureau of State Audits, but the one independent to that agency, our agency that we worked for. Um, So you can do either or, per the government code. You can have an internal one, or you can just revert back to and say, call the Bureau of State Audits whistleblower hotline. Both are anonymous if you want to be, and they both end up in the same result. They get directed to the individual agency, and they can investigate it, or they can refer it back to state audits. Um, So the most popular one for us was our in-house, well, excuse me, it wasn't in-house, but it was the internal, like I was talking about, independent third party that we contracted with to receive those complaints and then forward them on to us. And I would say it was probably 50-50 of whether the complainant wanted to be anonymous or not. A lot of times they wanted to be anonymous for the sake of being anonymous, but they gave us their contact information for further uh, clarification or questions, but they wanted to stay anonymous as far as the official report went. Um, And we would see... You know literally the whole spectrum of of violations or of allegations from uh, sexual harassment e e o type complaints on down to a um, a workplace really what ended up boiling down to a workplace issue, either a personality conflict with the supervisor or a coworker or uh, as we were talking offline before, that they received a a criticism or a rating at work that they thought was unjust and unfair and was ultimately, in their mind, retaliatory for something else that had happened, in some cases, mm. years ago, years prior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, very interesting casework. I really enjoyed doing that stuff and really getting into talking to the complainants, especially face-to-face, and kind of figuring out what the, the underlying basis is. And that I think that's really part of getting to the bottom of those allegations as well. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that we would unsubstantiate it or that would, it would be unfounded if it was a, you received a counseling memo because you didn't perform your job here. And somehow right. you perceived that that was because your current supervisor was mean to you in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to say that a lot of the times it was an employee performance issue, but we did see that frequently. Um, you know, and they were trying to save face or, you know, whatever right. the case may be by then filing a complaint, thinking, almost thinking that it would save them, you know, get them out of trouble or that it would negate the counseling memo because, you know, I'm going to file a complaint about this and make something up. Um, we right. didn't see a whole lot of of uh, fabricated allegations or bases for this is just what they perceive to be Uh Um, so very interesting work and then the more that you get into it with the sexual harassment side of things that's you know you you hear that term over and over severe and pervasive and I had one significant case like that in the three years that I was at that agency investigating those complaints um, where it was just immediate termination of the offending employee Um, and in that in that government space especially in California where we've regulated ourselves into the ground with everything. Uh Um, You know, we we have to abide by of course the internal agency policies, code of conduct, so on and so forth. In addition to the Cal HR rules and the government code regulations that say how we can do these investigations, when we can do them, uh, when we can put someone on administrative leave uh, versus a suspension uh, versus an outright termination. Um, It's, it's, Complex and somewhat painstaking to get a government employee terminated in California uh, unless sure. it meets that severe and pervasive mark. And even then, we're probably going to put them on ATO administrative time off, which is almost like a paid vacation, pending that termination date. And in that time frame, you know, they can appeal, um, and they can have their case heard before an administrative law judge, and they could potentially be reinstated. Uh, so it's really that burden of proof, although it's it, since it's administrative, it's 51% or more on our side to be able to prove that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The ALJ may say, no, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. So I'll give you a case example uh, to that end. We had uh, received a complaint where the fellow employees of the person they were complaining about said this employee worked for Uh, the agency that I was with, but he also was a volunteer firefighter. And as a volunteer firefighter, his agency that he volunteered with, of course, fell under the uh, mutual aid agreement with Cal Fire. And since California burns every summer, he would be activated through that mutual aid agreement and would go fight fires. So their complaint was while he's gone, which sometimes is a month at a time, we have to pick up his work, and then he comes back after the he's done with his firefighter duties, and he's bragging about all this extra money that he's made, and so on and so forth. Mm. So uh, we start to look into it, and you know, I start off by researching the government code and the policies, and seeing is there anything that says this gentleman or this person, someone in this type of capacity, uh, number one, do we have to let them go? And the answer is yes, we do. There's a specific government code that says if someone is, yes, if someone is employed in a capacity such as a uh, reserve or volunteer, firefighter, police officer, auxiliary, something along those lines, and they are called into duty under an active Cal OES mission, the employer has to let them go for a minimum of 30 days. Yeah, I I was kind of shocked, but yes. (laughs) And then there's further, as I dig into it more, there's further government code, or I should say lack of, that says nothing about the ability to double dip. So he was receiving ATO, administrative time off, emergency pay from us, his regular paycheck, plus he was getting paid by the volunteer agency through that mutual agreement, which was – kind of pennies, if you will, you know, it was a, it's yeah. a flat rate per day through their uh, agreement through the volunteer district with the, um, the state mutual aid. So it's like something like 40 or 50 bucks a day. And in some cases, those guys are working 24 hour days. Oh, yeah. um, but nevertheless, he's it's additional pay on top of his state pay. So he was getting both. Uh, and there's nothing that prohibits that. So and, as we, Brian, we look into this more, um, go ahead.
1: What is what is ATO administration? What does that mean?
2: Uh, Administrative time off. So you're still receiving your paycheck. It's like paid leave. You're you're still receiving your paycheck, but you're off work for one reason or another. So we can use that. In this case, it's authorized for that. Or and we could it, use it for not necessarily punitive or disciplinary, but if we, if we want to or need to remove the employee from the workplace because of the severity of the allegations, we can do that. And rather than making it disciplinary and suspending them before we even reach a conclusion in the investigation, we would put them on ATO so they're still receiving pay.
1: So It's almost does, like when a police officer
2: shoots someone, they get put oh. on paid administrative leave.
1: Okay. does er- Is everybody entitled to ATO?
2: If you're a or state it- government employee in California, yes.
1: Really? And so yeah. what is what is the time frame of that? What, How much time can you take off for ATO?
2: So if an agency puts you on it, it's really up to the agency's discretion. And, of course, they don't want to pay folks for taking a vacation, so to speak, not being at work. So they try and limit it to 30 days or less. Uh, and the government code in this situation with the volunteer fireman, the government code says 30 days is typically the max but if there's other circumstances the agency at its discretion may extend that.
1: Interesting. Okay, with that, it is. Brian. It, we I have was really
2: kind of shocked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, with that, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. That is okay. fascinating. I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs>
0: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current
2: trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com
0: C-A-L-I.
1: Here with Brian Briscoe, he's a workplace investigator, a fraud investigator at a state government agency, and prior though he was with a workplace, or he was with another agency where he did actually employee misconduct kinds of investigations. So um, we're just talking about the administrative time off. I'm just amazed, actually. I want 30 days off. <laughs> And paid. <laughs> I think everybody and I does. I can't get it. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, so so back uh, a little bit. Uh, you were talking about the rules for in-house investigation versus the
2: rules of Cal
1: HR. Is there any conflicts ever between those two entities and their rules?
2: There's conflicts in what we would like to do and what we're allowed to do. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, okay. So CalHR, kind of, they set the overall tone, and then the individual mm-hmm. agencies really have to tailor their policies to fit within those, those confines. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, no, there's not, but there is sometimes just a conflict of what we would like to do or how we would like to proceed. And I, I don't want to use the term that our hands are tied, but sometimes it seems that way. So we would have to really <laughs> be very specific yeah. in how we proceed.
1: And I suspect sometimes you run into an an interpretation problem of what the rules are.
2: No, never. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. know why I thought that. You know,
1: yeah, I would think that would be. Uh,
2: yeah, you know, sometimes kind of we do. Uh, sometimes it's a little frustrating on you know on the investigator side, and even the, you know on the management side of the supervising investigator, um, and even the individual agency's HR, where there's a very fine line. So if We can't just, a lot of times the employees will submit a complaint. Let's say it's about their supervisor. They'll submit a complaint about their supervisor, and usually it's around the time of the annual performance reviews, or if you have some other disciplinary action going on. And those are all standard questions that we ask them during that initial intake interview. You know, how was your last performance rating? How are you performing it? Or how do you feel you're performing? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, my supervisor just wrote me up a week ago. Oh, the day before you filed this complaint. So what's really going on? Uh, You know, and a lot of times they say, well, I, I want a new supervisor. And we can't necessarily do that. Number one, for logistics reasons, because we can't just move people whenever they want to be moved because they don't like somebody. Um, and but also, on the the EEO side of things, we can't just move someone arbitrarily because they claim that. You know, that somebody's being mean to them or whatever their claim may be, um, because that could present a retaliation claim later down the road, either from the manager that they want to be moved from or even the employee that wants to be moved. They could then say, well, you know, uh, they're retaliating against one or the other because they said that it moved or they're going to insinuate or imply a, um, a by default, if you will, that the allegation is sustained. Well, the employer must have believed me because they moved me. That means something occurred. They, uh-huh. they believe my complaint. So it's, it's a very fine line that we have to uh, walk there. In the severe cases, especially if we have some corroborating witnesses almost immediately, then yes, we will uh-huh. move someone. Uh, or we will put the the offending employee if it's a manager or even just a regular staff employee, we would put them on leave until we conclude the investigation, and of course, that investigation gets moved to the top priority list, so this person is not out on administrative leave for thirty days. Um, you know we want to limit that whenever we can, so it would be an all hands on deck at that at that point, and we're interviewing everybody that we can and trying to come to a conclusion on that investigation very quickly um mm-hmm. So ATO is used sparingly in those circumstances, but if it's in the circumstance of where it's it's authorized by law and in that case our hands are tied where, like with the volunteer firefighter, we have to get, let them go, then it would be used in those cases. So that's only, you know, like I said, the one case um, in the three years that I was doing those workplace investigations where we had a situation specifically like that with a volunteer firefighter that was by law authorized to, to go. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so as we dug into that complaint a little more, to go back to that scenario, um, we found that actually he had not been gone for a month. The most that he had been gone over the last preceding three years was two weeks total, um, consecutive. Mm. And the other times it was two and three days here and there when we had those very large fires up, uh um, Shasta area, the complex fire and whatnot. Right. And the, um. The additional money that he was making was not buckets and buckets of of money either you know, as I was saying, it was a flat rate that he was getting paid per day for his volunteer fire duties, and it's still taxed exactly the same as as the regular pay, so it wasn't like he was making all this extra money um and he denied any boasting, of course that you know he was making buckets and buckets of money um, maybe they misconstrued it um, because he was getting his regular state pay on top of this fire pay. Um, so there ended up being some more, uh, inner workings to that complaint itself, um, where interestingly enough, um, we actually did terminate that employee and then he appealed it and was reinstated. Uh, I can't go into too much more detail there other than to say that he, in his interview, his investigation interview, he actually brought up a different allegation and said, um, gave us information to where, again, we terminated him, but the ALJ said, well, he actually reported, he did what you wanted him to do as far as reporting these allegations. He just didn't do it in mm-hmm. the method that he should have done it. So, therefore, I'm going to consider his one month of termination a unpaid suspension, and he's going to be reinstated. So we were good with that because it did really make mm-hmm. sense. Um, but, you know, well, it's never it also,
1: it, nice it also to have sounds your, your like- decision kind of overturned. Yeah, and also sounds like he didn't think he was doing anything that was wrong.
2: He didn't. That, when, yeah, he. Yeah. What he did, the way that he went about actually reporting his his allegation was nowhere near the way that he should have done it. In fact, mm-hmm. it was it was so egregious the way that he did do it was the reason that we had terminated him. Um, oh. So, but you know, but we did we did agree with the the administrative law judge that you know. Yes, he reported. He did what we wanted them to do in terms of reporting the the suspicion or the allegation. He just didn't do it in anywhere near a method that he should have, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. And I can give you a little more detail on that. So the way that he did report it was actually by inappropriately accessing confidential records, basically to confirm his own suspicions, and then he reported what he found. And we said, no, 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 you can't do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can't do that. Huh. So, yeah. and now you but said had But now he, has,
2: he 50- has this uh, one-month suspension on his record. So, you know, that's not necessarily that it's going to haunt him, but it, it's permanently there in his official personnel file.
1: Yeah, it's permanently there, and it could haunt him if he was up for a promotion or something like that. Yeah,
2: for it sure. Could. Yeah, it definitely could.
1: So um, you said it had to be 51% in the favor of the agency in order for – uh, action to be taken is did I understand that correctly?
2: Uh, not necessarily for action to be taken, but that's our burden of proof level so we, we, you know with any civil or administrative case your your burden of proof is really um, beyond a reasonable doubt um, you know rather mm-hmm. than or excuse me, a preponderance of the evidence so fifty one percent or more is the rule of thumb that we use as opposed okay. to a uh, a criminal case that needs to be almost a hundred percent you know with the uh, Beyond a okay. reasonable doubt, in order for you know someone to be criminally convicted, so you know, and we had, and, and you know, the the interesting part was you know, we had all of our evidence lined up, and we don't we don't pull the suspect, if you will, um, what we would call the respondent, into an interview to ask them about the allegations until we are. Done with the investigation. We have all of our evidence lined up and then we're going to pull them into the interview and we're going to present them with all of the evidence after we question them about the allegation and get their side of the story. We're going to say, okay, but what about and show them exhibit A through Z. Um uh-huh. So <clears throat> you know, he, he openly admitted to everything. He said, Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. Yes, I did that. But here's why. Um uh-huh. you know, and the, the leadership and HR at that agency said, you know. We get it, but you still violated basically rule number one of accessing confidential information. So therefore, mm-hmm. we're going to move to terminate you.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah. And and so, the you know, and it's, the
2: firefighter really interesting work.
1: And yeah, for sure. And the firefighter himself. Now, how was he affected?
2: He he's the one that was terminated, but on his oh, firefighter okay. side, as far as we know, no effect.
1: Okay, so I'm confused. Who accessed the confidential information?
2: The the state employee that was also the volunteer firefighter.
1: Okay, so I really got confused here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, that's okay. So, a coworker filed the complaint.
2: Correct. One of his state co-workers filed the complaint that he was taking all this time off to go do his firefighter duties and then when he would come back he would brag about all the extra money he was making. And And really the basis of their complaint was that they had to pick up the slack while he was gone.
1: Right. Okay. Got that. So why did the firefighter have to uh, access confidential information?
2: What was the purpose for that? Because he knew of a I'm trying to word this correctly so I don't uh, insinuate the agency. He knew of a a wrongdoing, uh, and in order to basically to have the evidence for his own complaint of that wrongdoing, he accessed the confidential information.
1: Okay, interesting.
2: Yeah, rather than just filing the complaint and saying, you know, I have, substantial reason to believe X, Y, Z, and then at which point we would interview him and find out what that substantial reason is, and then we could duly authorize to access that confidential information and confirm that. He mm-hmm. just went ahead and did it himself. Got it. Okay.
1: So, hmm, I just had a question on the tip of my tongue. Um, so how do you protect the anonymity of the complainant? Because it would seem like, the majority of the time, the person that the complaint was being made against would figure out who it was.
2: A lot of times they do, even when it is truly anonymous. When they call in and they don't give a phone number, an email, a name, nothing. They are just John Doe Anonymous. We all love that complainant, right?
1: John Doe um, Anonymous? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Mr. Anonymous, because you can't okay. follow up with them to ask any clarifying questions. A lot right. of times their original complaint is so vague it's like yesterday the sky was blue and I'm offended because it was supposed to be gray. Okay. Right. <laughs> How do okay. I follow up on that? Yeah. Um, you know, so we tell them that if, we, if it's known um, or if they, you know, a lot of times they'll make a complaint and they, you know, in person, but I want to stay anonymous. I don't want to be involved. Well, I'm sorry you're already involved. I'm going right. to keep you as anonymous as possible. But, and, and we do, we absolutely do, but we have to let everybody know if the let's say that we substantiate this, and there's some type of disciplinary action against the um, the respondent, the offending employee, and they appeal that disciplinary action. Once we get to a administrative proceeding like that, all all anonymity goes out the window. Um, you know, mm-hmm. because they have obviously a right to face their accuser, and we're going to have to disclose that information to the whoever the hearing board is, whether it's an internal um, hearing or if it's the CalHR and the administrative law judge. We, we have to disclose that to them. Um, so we let them know, you know, at that point, you're no longer anonymous, um, and then it becomes a yeah, public record, know, and the it, employee can request that.
1: It's just like people that talk to the police on a criminal case. They think they're, you mm-hmm. know... They're not going to be disclosed, and their name's going to be in the police report, along with their address and telephone number, and they are considered, then, a prosecution witness. And so, uh, they're always very surprised when I'm knocking on their door asking to talk to them. It's uh, really interesting.
2: (laughs) I was supposed to be anonymous.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, Okay. Definitely. Uh, so, you know, so there there were occasions where the complainant would then say, "Well, I don't, I don't want to do anything about this. Then, if I can't stay truly anonymous, then I don't want to proceed." Okay, thank you. And in some of the cases, you know, we would, depending on the allegation, we would have to investigate anyways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, without their cooperation, um, and we would let them know that due to the severity of the allegation, especially if it's sexual harassment, I have to investigate this, whether you want to remain anonymous or not. So just be aware that I'm going to mention you as anonymous source one in my report, but in that supporting data of that report, and if it's called into question later down the road, I'm going to have to say it was John Doe that works at one, two, three, four main street. And here's his phone number.
1: Sure. How uh, many complaints come in through that hotline? Are there a lot or, or, or is it few?
2: Hmm. I would say on average of when I was there, three a month. Okay. So not, not a whole lot, but not, not zero.
1: And would you say the majority of them were minor or that they were pretty serious?
2: I would say the majority were minor, Um, probably Mm -hmm. 80, 20 percentage wise were minor. Um, We would get maybe, well, maybe even less than that. I'd say we probably have one or two a year that were like, you know, stop the presses. This is a serious allegation. Now, whether it was substantiated, less than that, probably half. Uh, So, you know, it's kind of a give and take, if you will. We had other methods that things would be reported besides that anonymous hotline. So we, we would get a random email. We had a and they they still do an internal phone line of course that would be routed directly to the investigations unit uh, and then we had a, a email box which doesn't necessarily work for anonymity unless you create a <laughs> yeah, john I doe at to... email <laughs> <laughs> right exactly <laughs> or use your cousin's email which we had that one time we had to uh, you know I replied and you know I don't I don't find your name in our database <laughs> where do you work oh this is my cousin's email I want to be anonymous
1: <laughs> right
2: um yeah you know, and, and we would get a lot of word of mouth complaints too where someone would overhear something occur or they would see something occur in the, the office in the workplace and they would then report that to us and a lot of times they would go speak to their manager about it and the managers, anyone in a supervisory or manager level per CalHR rules is bound to report it.
0: Um, right, of so course. they would, they have a
2: duty to report in that case. And same with us in, you know, in the investigative capacity, if you report something to me that could potentially be a violation, I'm, I have a duty to report it. Um, almost like a mandatory reporting situation with mm-hmm. child abuse and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we would get a, a lot, a fair amount of reports that way. Um, an interesting Aspect of these types of investigations that we did at that agency were what we would call privacy violations. Uh, so this particular agency, and actually a lot, almost all government agencies that I'm aware of, they deal with a lot of PII, personally identifiable information, and mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of cases, PHI, um, personal health information. Um, <sighs> So if Brian, we why don't get you, a, we, Brian hang
1: on? Excuse me a sec. i I'm sorry. Hang, hang on to that a minute, because I, I want to delve into that a little bit more. And we need to take a quick okay. break, so I don't want to interrupt you in the oh, middle. Okay. okay. Thank you. Sure. Hmm.
0: News. News. Opinion. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice.
2: Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com
1: My guest, Brian Frisco is a investigator, a fraud investigator now, formerly a workplace investigator at a state agency in California, and we've been just talking about the process and things that he's gotten involved in. Uh, so, you talked about personal identifying information and personal health information. Let's talk about that a little bit because I suspect that's probably a very common violation.
2: It it is, uh, and it was at this agency uh, so much so that this agency has a separate privacy office that filters those initially before they come to the investigation unit if need be so this particular agency deals with <clears throat> excuse me a lot of pii phi even pci uh, payment card information and so on and they have uh, web web filters in place on their network to where if let's say that you're an employee there and you send Information via email outside of the internal network to a, an external party, those filters are going to catch everything that's outbound, um, even inbound as well, but the outbound stuff that obviously is more we're concerned with. Um, and it shoots any suspected violations over to the privacy office. Privacy office reviews them, and if they cannot through their own work, determine if it was a legitimate reason to send it out. So let's say that there was a a, a request that came in, public records request or something along those lines that came in, and the requester asked for it to be sent to them by email. Um, It's not common that we would do that to begin with, and if we did, it would be an encrypted file. But let's say that it got sent back out um, and it wasn't redacted. some you know maybe they missed something uh, some PII somewhere in the redaction mm-hmm. process, and it got sent out. so the filters are going to catch that. If the privacy office uh, cannot verify that it was a legitimate reason for that outbound traffic containing the PII, then they send it over to the investigations unit, and then we have to look into that. you know we pull a case number and look into it as a legitimate potential um, um, privacy policy violation. And a lot of times we're able to determine through further research that it was legitimate. Um, and we do that, you know, through the back process, like any investigation of here's the request, here's what they specifically asked for, this person forgot to redact. And, you know, those it's not necessarily going to turn into a, a disciplinary action. You might just get a verbal counseling from a manager, hey, be more cautious, don't do that again. Um, but with the level of information that that agency deals with, um, and, and we hear it in the news every day, you know, this person had a... Um, or this entity had a uh, data breach. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's huge. We can't, we, that agency in particular, cannot, um, cannot incur such a, a data breach like that. There would be, uh, I would venture to say, close to a million or so people, if not more, that would be affected, potentially affected by a data breach like that. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, the, those measures are in place. Um, and that, those types of privacy violations, I would say our average caseload, there were five of us investigators for this agency for the entire state, uh, that did just workplace investigations. And we had an average caseload that I would say about 15 a month, uh, during the time that I was there. And probably four or five of those were privacy violations. And those didn't take a whole long time to, to work, but they were almost nonstop. You would get probably two a week of these different things. Um, the interesting part was around tax time, April, May, June, people mm-hmm. were sending their personal tax filings to themselves, to their private Gmail accounts. For some reason, they would do this from their state email um, <laughs> or they would send it to their CPAs. <laughs> why, why they wouldn't just log into their, uh, you know, their Gmail email. from yeah. their work computer and do it that way. They would do it from their their work um, state email. Um, and we me. would get those incessantly through through tax time. Um, so finally, after, after my first year there, I approached my manager and, you know, after being bombarded with a ton of these around tax time, I said, Hey, is there any reason why privacy office or even, uh, executive leadership cannot send out a, an agency wide email reminding people not to do this? (laughs) So he goes, oh, no, there's no reason. Let's do that. So from there on, they send one out at about January they send it, and then in March, and then again in April they send a reminder out, don't send your personal information out because you you will get disciplined for it. We've now told you it's in policy, and, you know, it's not just going to be a verbal counseling then. You're probably going to get a memo.
1: (laughs) So what about uh, people that send information out intentionally intentionally maybe for a friend or maybe even for, for payment. Have you run into that?
2: We we did, actually. I had a, another case uh, with a gentleman who, a little bit of a convoluted backstory. So employee A's brother was arrested and needed to be bailed out. Employee A said, I'll bail you out. I'll have the, the uh, bail bondsman send me the paperwork, so on and so forth. Again, used his statement email for this. Employee A fills out the paperwork but doesn't know how to use the scanner to scan it to himself as a PDF, so he goes to employee B, asks employee B to scan this and send it to me, to employee A. So B sends it to himself. That flags a violation because the filters catch that activity on the scanners as well. Yeah. Uh, and then B emails, forwards that email then to A, second violation. A, then sends it to the bail bondsman to the external address, third violation. Mm -hmm. So now we've got one, really one privacy violation, one case number, but three incidents uh, Mm -hmm. combined under this. So it was was dynamic in that I, I started with, obviously, employee B. Uh, and pulled him in and said, you know, what, what's going on here? Because, well, I don't want to say, you know, because it's not my, my business. I'm like, well, understand that you're the one on the hook right now, um, because you, you're the one that committed this violation, according to all of the, the digital evidence here. So he finally told me the story. So then I had to pull in employee A, and then I had to contact incarcerated, now free, um, uh, employee A's brother does these people do these people have the right to have your personal information and he said yes they you know they do by way of his brother and whatnot so that one was interesting it's not common that we would contact an external resource like that
1: yeah um now, did you, did you also but, have to you know, contact we, we had the, to in that case did you also have to contact the bail bonds
2: i was going to but i ran that by my manager and he said i think we're good with just having the corroboration of the brother um the the incarcerated brother his uh, verification that he allowed his brother to have this information. Um, so I didn't, but that would have been my next step if um, yeah. allowed to do so.
1: Interesting. And what happened to employees A and B?
2: Uh, they, they both got get... a memo for the privacy violation.
1: Okay, all right. What's the most yeah. egregious and employee privacy
2: Employee B in particular was, this was actually like his second or third such privacy violation. Um, so he may have got uh, an actual letter as opposed to a memo, just a next step up in the disciplinary process uh, for that particular type of violation. But uh, A had no other history, so he got a memo.
1: Okay. What's the most egregious privacy violation that you've run into?
2: Sending sending and receiving and and actually stealing um, payment information. Which then that's how it came to our initial attention. It actually mm-hmm. turned into uh, embezzlement of funds, um, including whitewashing of checks and reissuing, making those checks out to themselves um, at their home address. Which, again, if any criminals are listening to this, you'd be best served sure <laughs> to create a fake email and get a P.O. box.
1: <laughs> Amazing
2: yeah you make it too easy,
1: <laughs> yeah I somehow people think when they're operating in the internet world that they're anonymous and it's far from the truth, uh, oh far from it, and
2: even when you think you're anonymous, you're still not
1: yeah, yeah,
2: so uh, you I'm know you can take cu- steps to try and make yourself anonymous, but if if you have the right investigator through IP addresses and whatnot you're you're not anonymous.
1: Yeah. If you have Brian Briscoe on the job, you're not anonymous. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm kind of curious about how many of the workplace investigations cross over into a workers' comp investigation
2: situation. I didn't have, but maybe one in the time that I was there. Um, And I didn't have to deal with... um, you know, any work comp investigators, yeah, maybe just one, one time. Um, um, and, um, and you know, I'm trying to remember, you know, this, this was a, ended up being, you know, as, as I'm digging through the data and the evidence, ended up going back multiple, multiple years, uh, close to 10 years of, of um, evidence where it appeared that this employee had been doing these acts And even in that situation, yes, it it was a, the the employee had a workers' comp claim years back, and then as I was investigating, actually filed another one, um, and they were not aware that I was investigating at this point, as far as we had not notified them yet, and requested to interview them. Um, But that's really the only one that I can think of, um, and I'm sure curious minds want to know, so... With that one in particular, and I really can't get into too many specifics because it actually is still open in litigation. um, Uh The employee ended up, when I requested to interview them, um, called in sick and notified me. And Actually, the the door had just closed on the plane as I was flying to their office to interview them. Uh And I got an email, I'm sorry, I'm going home sick. I won't be in tomorrow. Um, Because per CalHR rules, we have to give them enough notice to be able to obtain um, a union representation for their interview. So I, we try and give them uh, about 48 to 72 hours. By we, minimum we can give them is 24 and yeah. you can usually find a representative within that window. But sure. since it was literally the other end of the state, we wanted to give them a little more time um, and policy was typically 72 hours and um, so as literally as the plane closed, and I was turning off my my uh, work phone, I checked my email one last time, and I had an email from this employee saying, "I'm going home sick. I won't be in tomorrow." So flew uh, to Southern California for nothing, worked out of that office for the day, and then flew back. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nothing. I was right next to Disneyland, so I went to Disneyland and then flew back. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, there you go. Uh, so how, how <laughs> you got to make much? something
2: worthwhile? You know, it was a Friday, so I, I went on Saturday and then flew back Saturday night.
1: There you go. There you go. That's good.
2: That um, works. So, so then that how um,
1: how much does having the union rep there curtail an investigation?
2: It depends on the individual rep. Uh, some of them are very assertive. Some of them are overly assertive, and some of them, uh, in particular, with my my local office, that I you know there was one that I dealt with all the time, and she was phenomenal. She wasn't. She was very neutral. She wasn't, uh, you know, overly over the top on the employee side. She wasn't yeah. definitely on our side, but she was very realistic and she would, um, explain to the employee right there. A lot of them will want to call for a break and they'll step outside with the employee, but she would just ask for a pause in the interview. And she would explain to the employee, you know, where this was leading or what was going on. Um, mm-hmm. she was, she was great, and she's still active. She was actually herself a retired uh, state employee, and then went to work for SEIU as specifically as a um, a rep. And uh, just I wish they could all be like that. You know, there were some that were very aggressive and assertive, uh, and we would kind of have to put them in their place, so to speak. That you're here really for uh, as an advisory um, right uh, role to the employee. Right. You're not their attorney. You're not counsel. You can't object. Um, you know, um, we would have to kind of tell them, remind them of that. You know, you can ask questions. You can um, prompt the employee to ask clarifying questions, but you you cannot and you will not interfere with the interview. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and there wasn't any... I had to give a a couple of repeat admonishments to one in particular, but there was never an occurrence in all the cases I handled where we felt it appropriate over the need to go to SEIU and say, hey, this person is really overstepping their bounds. Um, Nothing went that far with any of the cases that I had. Um, I had heard of that happening at at our agency in the past where there was a couple in particular uh, union reps that really thought they were, um, you know, like an administrative lawyer, and <laughs> right. we're, we're jumping up in the uh, the investigator's face, and they they went to SEIU and said, "Look, you need to you need to handle your business with this person, um, or we're going to um, refuse to allow them to be the representative on these investigations." So there's yeah. limited space for us right. uh, as the agency right. to uh, refuse a right. representative, <laughs> and when we would when we would notify the employee that uh, we were conducting an interview and that they have the right to, you know, their Robinson rights and uh, right to representation and whatnot, um, we would tell them it can be anyone of your choosing from the union or another employee, so long as it's not a direct coworker, your direct supervisor or anyone in your in your chain of command. Um, Ryan, I've got it. I'm sorry. Uh,
1: You're you're doing a great job and you're giving us lots of good information, but they're going to cut us off because we're at the end of our hour, if you can believe that. Oh, no. That went fast. It went really fast. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is valuable information. It was really interesting. And uh, thank you. And again, folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Brian Briscoe. It's PIS Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to PIS Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again
1: for listening to the preceding program.